You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tim Malini's latest novel is Jump. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Thanks for having me. Tim, tell us about your beginnings as a writer. When and where and why did you start writing? I started writing when I was very young, but like a lot of writers that I know, especially in the mystery field, I didn't do anything about it for many years. It was one of those things that was a hobby. I kept it secret. I didn't share the writing with a lot of people. And then life took over. I went to college, started a job, discovered in college, beer, girls, and pizza, not necessarily in that order. Then you get caught up in work, and I was traveling all the time, and I was always a very voracious reader. I grew up surrounded by books, a lot of the pulp adventures of the 30s and 40s, and got turned on from those adventure stories into comics. Uh, From that, started reading crime fiction, Hammett and Chandler, and then branched out into things like Elmore Leonard, which really gave me a sense of voice, and was always reading. I was the guy who on an airplane instead of working was reading a book. I was at the grocery store, if the line's too long, I have a book with me and I'm reading it. And a voice in my head was always saying, you should write something like this, you should write something like this. And I didn't do anything about it. And then about eight years ago, my wife was pregnant with her first daughter and she was going to bed early and I found myself with time on my hands and I'd seen all the movies that were coming out and that voice got a little louder and said, this is a window of opportunity when you have this skewed schedule so if she went to bed at 9, I would start writing at 9.30, and I would keep writing till about 2, 3 in the morning. And I did that for the nine months till we had our first daughter, Claire. And I had finished the draft of a novel by then. And while I was doing that, I was also writing short stories, trying to work out different things about voice and character, and started sending them in with no real expectation that they would get published. And they started getting picked up. And one of them was selected to be the title story of an anthology that was edited by Harlan Coben, the New York Times bestselling writer. And it was in there with some very established mystery writers. And that was a huge boost in confidence right at the time that I was shopping my novel. And from that, I started taking the novel writing a lot more seriously. And two years ago, my uh, first novel came out, and now my fourth book has just come out. Uh, Title story. So what was the title? Uh, The first? Oh, the title was Till Death Do Us Part. And the collection is called Death Do Us Part, and it's stories about love, lust, and murder. And they're all stories about relationships gone awry in some way, since a lot of murders come out of personal circumstances. And this is a story that won the McCavity Award that year for Best Short Story in the Mystery Genre. And I was thrilled with that because the story is very much inspired by my parents. And it involves, although my parents had a very, very loving marriage their entire lives, Uh, This was sort of the inverse of that, and it was about a couple that had been married uh, for 30 years, and uh, no, I'm sorry, actually, they were married 60 years in the story, and they uh, were at the stage that we all get to where you can finish the other person's sentence, you know the person so well, you know what they're going to do before they do it, and the woman was a botanist, the husband's a chemist, and they have this ritual every year on their anniversary where they make each other dinner. And they're at that stage where they just can't stand each other, but they don't believe in divorce. They're very, very traditional. So using her knowledge of botany, his knowledge of chemistry, every year, all the dishes, save one on each side of the table, are poison. 
So you find them on their anniversary having this dinner in which the entire story is largely carried by dialogue and reminisces that re- reminiscences of their marriage and the this couple that is so close and yet <laughs> so desirous of getting farther apart that uh, they're they're uh, recalling different incidents of, of of their marriage and all the different conflicts and sticking points along the way, and you get pulled into this conversation as they sample each other's cooking. And the real question is, what's going to happen? And, and about halfway through the story, you realize this is going to end badly for somebody. And it, it was sort of the, um, what would you do if you were at that point where you just wanted to throttle the person that you, that you knew and in many ways loved the most? Now, you have a, a rather irreverent approach to the mystery genre. Don't yeah, you? that story came out, and uh, I was I was recently married, and my my wife, uh, who's wonderful, <laughs> looked at me. And thought, what is going through your head? What is? And now she's she's come to terms with the fact that whenever we go to the zoo, whenever we go on vacation, I'm always looking at things a little bit upside down. So there might be a slide, and I think, oh, what if you stuffed a dead body in that tube slide, or. There's a boat. What if that boat was somehow, you know, sunk by terrorists or attacked by a giant squid? Tim, tell us about creating your series characters. The series is based here in San Francisco, and every book starts here and then goes someplace far away. The first book was called Stealing the Dragon, and that's the second edition of that is coming out this September, and it's being adapted for film, which I'm very excited about. And it takes place in San Francisco's Chinatown, and it also takes place in Hong Kong. And there are two protagonists. There is a private investigator based here in San Francisco, and there is an erstwhile partner of his who is a woman who was orphaned as a young girl uh, by the by she was orphaned by uh, sorry. There's a woman who is uh, a um, I'm backing up. <laughs> so it involves a private investigator here in San Francisco, uh, and he's the male protagonist and the female protagonist. Although it's a non-romantic relationship they have for various reasons, I won't go into here. Uh, is a very unusual character. She was orphaned by the Yakuza and raised by the Chinese triads in Hong Kong. So uh, half of that book takes place in, in Hong Kong and talks about her being raised and really trained to be a professional killer. So she's an assassin. And it was sort of a collision, a very deliberate collision between the adventure novels and the thrillers that I had read growing up and a contemporary PI story. So the voice has that modern feel, but the scope of it really takes ordinary people and puts them into extraordinary circumstances. And I was very fascinated by that collision of cultures and the idea of someplace like Chinatown where it's really a world within a world. And it looks one way by day when all the tourists are there. And then at night, what really happens in the back alleys, what's really going on. And it looks a bit at the connection between some of the Tong gangs and some of the activity of the triads. And it deals a bit with the subject of human trafficking. So it's a story that has a big scope, some very serious, serious subject ma- matter, uh, but it's also unapologetically entertaining. It was, it was a book that I wanted to write to be a book that I wanted to read next time I was stuck on an airplane. Well, tell us uh, a little bit about the, the film adaptation. Who, do you know how, much, how far are they into it? Right now we're at the script stage and going back and forth on various changes to the story, which you have to do, and figuring out what characters stay, which ones go, how things get streamlined, and it's been a fascinating process, actually. It's, it's been very exciting. And the third book in that series just came out last December, and that has the unlikely title Greasing the Piñata, and it takes place in Mexico. That uh, might be my favorite title, actually. And... Greasing is an old mob term for bribing a public official, and one of the characters in the book is a U.S. senator. 
So that's all I'll say on that topic. But that was a fun, a fun book to write, and that's sort of a twisted travelogue across Mexico. Now, you've written books set in Hong Kong, Mexico. Do you uh, force yourself to travel to these places to... Uh... Sometimes I twist my own arm and force <laughs> myself to go there and do research. Yeah, I had traveled there a lot when I was uh, working for, for many years and having to travel a lot. Uh, for business, and these are places I wanted to go back to, and I also want to go back there in my imagination and look at some of them uh, from a slightly skewed perspective, to tell you the truth. So Greasing the Pinata starts in Puerto Vallarta, which is a very tourist-friendly place, but I wanted to look at it a little more from a Night of the Iguana perspective, a little more, a little darker, and, and really look at what could happen beneath the surface, and then the book progresses into slightly more dangerous territory as you move across the country. Could you talk about this kind of... Uh, what might to some people seem somewhat uneasy combination of uh, stuff that's pretty funny uh, with stuff that's pretty dark. I was a big fan as a reader and still am of folks like Elmore Leonard, Lauren Esselman, Joe Lansdale, people who are able to combine laugh out loud humor and really dark, tense situations. And I've heard writers talk about just the absurdity of some of the criminal activity that goes on. And while something very scary is happening, a lot of sideways things can happen. And the real criminal geniuses are either on Wall Street or in Washington. So a lot of crimes <laughs> that seem well-planned uh, go awry. They just they, they go wrong. And some of the characters involved in those criminal enterprises aren't quite as smart as they think they are. So for me, it's a great way to alleviate the tension, but also make the book very entertaining and very real. Because I think in those moments, whether you're looking at the cops, you're, you're looking at an investigator, or looking at the criminals themselves, there are moments where things are actually just patently absurd or funny, or there's that dark humor that you can draw on. And I've always admired writers who can get into that through dialogue and have that contrast and have that pendulum swing. So you have a book where the opening chapter might be very, very tense, and the next chapter releases some of that pressure, gets you in a different frame of mind, and makes the next chapter, which might have a bit of violence in it, that much more abrupt or that much more shocking. And I think that does a lot for the pacing, and it does a lot for the involvement with the reader. As a writer of series characters, you have to <clears throat> you have a novel arc and you have a series arc. That's right. Uh, talk about uh, creating that series arc, especially when you don't necessarily know how long it's going to last. I think a big part of writing a successful series today is to look at every book as a standalone novel that you can read in any order in relation to the rest of the series, but respect the readers who have and really value the readers who started with you from the beginning or the readers who might discover you three or four books in and then go back and read the books in order. So I think the challenge is to have a complete novel that has its own arc and, and tension and resolution, but at the same time have references to changes in the characters because you know what happened previously or you know what's going to happen next and not rehash everything you've done about their backstory but allude to little things along the way. Much like a good film, you can tell is involving a scene or capturing a moment of characters that are fully three-dimensional before that movie started and long after it ended. So I think that's really what the novels are about, is capturing a moment in time in which these people who have a rich life beforehand and will have a rich life afterwards, assuming they make it out of the novel alive, are sketched out in the course of that, that time frame, and you're making sure all the threads connect. So part of that is doing your homework and reading your own books when you're about to write the next one and remembering <laughs> whose eyes are blue and who 
likes who and who you know who's who's in trouble with the law and so on and so forth. So you get those details right because if you don't, the writer, the, the readers will. If you don't get the details right, the readers will definitely let you know. Could you talk? Uh, do you keep a database or, or like character sketches, or do you actually sit down and go, "Oh my God, I read my books." I, I wish it were that organized. I'm, I'm very fortunate that you do get help from the publisher and you do get help from the copy editors who are great about some of the continuity things, height and weight and things like that. But yeah, I will, as I start a new story, get the story out and then about halfway through, go back and revisit the previous novels just to get a sense of tone and shifting relationships with the characters and remind myself so that's uh, very fresh in my mind. You want those voices very, very frontal lobe when you're writing a new book in that series, which is in a way, part of what I did with Jump was write a completely different kind of novel because I wanted to take a break from those characters so they were that much more fresh when I came back to them. That was, you just uh, anticipated my next question. You jumped right ahead there, not uh, most appropriately. Uh, so you decided to, to take a break and write Jump now. How is Jump different from your other novels? By the, is it informed by the same kind of pulp sources? Jump is taking sort of a classic structure almost an Agatha Christie-like structure. You open with a dead body. There's 10 suspects, equal points of view. Anybody could have done it. And turns it on its head with a very contemporary, very irreverent narrative structure. And I was very interested in trying to bring a contemporary voice to a classic mix mystery structure. And I wanted to write sort of a locked room mystery. And I had an opening in mind and was very excited about where that could potentially go. And then as the characters became more real to me, I thought the opportunity was to take a classic murder mystery and really write it as a story that's underlying that, that becomes a romance. So in a way, Jump is about finding true love in the midst of a multiple homicide. Uh, it, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's a book that has these balanced points of view and the narrative style, part of the title comes from the jump cut technique that you see in film, where you might end one chapter with a certain pair of characters in the midst of a, of a conversation. And then that dialogue segues seamlessly to the opening of the next chapter. But it's two different characters in a completely different location doing something else. So in a way, although the chapters are very short and you're shifting points of view, the story itself reads like one unbroken narrative. It's meant to be a, a very cohesive jigsaw puzzle and you want to really get to know these characters. And I was very intrigued by the idea that if you have people in close quarters and there's a triggering event like a murder, what happens to those relationships? How do those people interact and what alliances develop, what romances could develop and what betrayals might happen? And a lot of the book takes place on the single floor of an apartment building in, San, in downtown San Francisco. And I was also intrigued by the idea of neighbors, these people that you see, you might know their names, you might know what they do for a living, and you have this sense that you're part of this small world or community, but you don't really know what goes on behind their doors. You don't really know these people terribly well. And I thought it would be interesting to have an event that suddenly had those people really enter into each other's lives. So that was kind of a structural in inspiration for, for Jump. and. It was a challenge I gave to myself, and then the characters really drove the rest of it, and it was a very, very fun book to work on. It, it sounds like your writing technique involves just starting with page one and saying, and having no idea what's going to happen, maybe even on page two. The great and sadly late uh, Donald Westlake, who I think is one of the, the greatest 
American writers last century and, and certainly was one of the great crime writers. Uh, I saw him on a panel once and he talked about whether you outline or not and he was one of those folks who tells himself the story. And if you talk to writers in the mystery community, it's about a 50-50 split between the hardcore outliners and the folks who just make it up as they go along. And I'm more in the make it up as you go along, think of a really strong opening, have a sense of where it's going to end, and start to map out that trajectory. But really, you're telling the story to yourself. So you're writing that opening and then saying to yourself, okay, what happens next? What happens next? What happens next? And that gets you through the book. And I think it gets you, you through it in a way that you surprise yourself. It's a very organic process, and the reader sees things in it that they wouldn't have expected because you as the writer didn't know it was coming. I think Elmore Leonard once said in his book on writing that if you're not surprised, the reader won't be either, and I'm a firm believer in that. Now, sometimes you run into a dead end, and you have to go back, and that's where the editing comes in. I think there's a lot of good writers, but I think a great book comes from really great self-editing, and you have to be confident enough to just go for it and recognize that it might turn out great, and it might be the beginning of something that could be great if only you had made that left turn, and you go back and make it after the fact. <laughs> now, um when you were this uh, jump, it sounds like it has some some more. Um, I think uh, narrative experimentation. Yeah, it does. This interlinked narrative between the characters was a really interesting thing. I hadn't seen anything like it in crime fiction. I wanted to try that, so I wanted a character to be the catalyst for everything happening. But I wanted every chapter represented very closely by the point of view of the person being affected by that. So the catalyst really is that at the opening of the book, a uh, landlord, who is arguably the most despicable landlord in San Francisco, which is saying a lot, uh, takes a header off the roof of his own building. And it's unclear as to whether or not he's been encouraged off the roof or whether or not it was suicide. And one of the problems in San Francisco for the last couple of years is that there's been a dismal closure rate for homicide investigations. So it just so happens one of the people living on the top floor of the building where everyone by default is a suspect, is a recently retired homicide cop. And he, over the last two years, has progressively pulled back from the job and finally decided to hang it up because he lost his wife to cancer, and he was very, very close to her, and she was the reason he got up in the morning. She was the reason that he did the job, and he, she was the person he wanted to impress. And through her because she was such a gregarious person and, and was so loved by so many people, all the neighbors knew him and knew of him. But he didn't really know these people he was living near. He was a homicide cop, so when they came to work, he was probably coming home to bed. When he was going to work, they were going to bed. He might be in the elevator next to them, smelling of formaldehyde from the morgue. So he was disconnected from these people already. And what happens is this landlord falls off the roof, and this homicide cop, whose name is Sam, his ex-partner comes to him and says, if we treat it like a suicide, there's no paperwork. We don't have to worry about this, and it's not an unsolved homicide. But if there's something to be suspicious about, we should look into this. So you live there. Maybe you could knock on your neighbor's doors and just give me an idea. Is there anything to this? So the book really opens with that problem of this person who has pulled back from humanity and pulled back from the life he had and really withdrawn from the world of the living and is trying to decide what he's going to do now with this hole in his life. And as a favor to a friend, he starts knocking on doors, and he has this unique challenge of get to know your neighbors. And with the first knock, he finds that his neighbors are a lot more interesting 
and a lot more suspicious than he ever suspected. <laughs> and the one thing they all have in common, although they're a very eclectic bunch, is that they all hated this landlord. And they are all quite candid about being happy that he's gone. And if he looks in the mirror, Sam has to admit that he's probably on that list too. So he decides that this is worth looking into, and he agrees to informally start to investigate. And his neighbors are an interesting bunch. There's uh, a aging jazz singer who has a rather high level of disdain for the opposite sex for very good reason, but is also more than willing to confess to any crime, past or present. There's two <laughs> young women. Uh, there's two young women who are incredibly smart and excruciatingly attractive. One's going to law school, the other's going to medical school, and they're paying for school by uh, running a webcam that reveals a lot more than their SAT scores. And that's a whole revelation to this gentleman of a, of a different generation. And there's these two brothers who had messed up and screwed up every job they ever had in every possible white-collar employment you can imagine in San Francisco and finally decided they were going to be the guys who come into the office buildings and make sandwiches every day and sell sandwiches to all their co-workers. And shortly after doing that, the older brother realizes, hey, we're already in all these office buildings. Half of our friends are stoners. We could be moving pot. We could be selling, in addition to sandwiches, we could be selling joints. And pretty soon they've become a major distributor for, for, the, uh, for a gang running marijuana through the Mission District. So you have this very quick collision of cultures between the gang world of the Mission District and a more gentrified part of town in this apartment building. And the brothers are known as screw-ups on the floor, but are oddly innocent in many ways in terms of their intentions other than just their own accumulation of wealth. But they've brought some unsavory characters into the mix. And it turns out that there's some other threads with some other neighborhoods that I won't describe here, or other neighbors rather, uh, that might involve blackmail, might involve extortion, might involve some unsavory pasts. Uh, there's a B-movie producer who has a, uh, uh, a swollen prostate but a shrinking bank balance, and he has his own agendas about seeing the rest of the uh, rest of the floor implicated. So it's, it's quickly a mess, and it's, it's one of those things where only by getting to know the characters and them getting to know each other are you going to unravel who really is, you know, who's Colonel Mustard with the candlestick in the, in the library. So uh, that kind of pull on a thread, figure out the puzzle sort of mystery was really interesting to me. And I decided to really drive it through relationships. And that was a, a very fun experiment. And I'm delighted with how the book turned out. I think my favorite uh, review of Jump so far came from the Boston Globe. And they said, if you took the pages of Elmore Leonard's Get Shorty and threw it in the air next to Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express, and then hired Monty Python to edit them together, this is the hilarious book you'd end up with, and I couldn't be happier with that. Do you live in San Francisco in an apartment building owned by an onerous landlord? Or I will say this. I live in San Francisco in an apartment building. Certain physical attributes of the apartment building in my book and the neighborhood are uncannily similar to where I happen to live. <laughs> and... If you really press me, there might be some stories about the folks who manage the apartment building that I've lived in for many years. So some of it is definitely based in reality. You can definitely find some of the locations and some of the quirks of the city. I, I like writing about San Francisco. It's a wonderful place to try to bring to life in fiction. And uh, with this book, it was nice uh, striking at something close to home. I've been speaking with Tim Mullaney. His latest novel is Jump. Thank you for joining me, Tim. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.